Welcome, welcome. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to get into Scripture right now. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. I'm sure they are ready to go. So uh, raise your hand. They'll get you one. If not, we'll also have it up on the screen. A couple things before we jump in. Uh, we have been in a series in the book of Daniel. Today is actually the very last day in this book. So we'll be kind of summarizing some things and going through the last several chapters. And then uh, next week, we begin a new series. It'll be basically a three-week series. We do this every year. It's kind of a way of recalibrating ourselves to what we see God has called us to be as a church. It's kind of our yearly or annual vision series. It's an opportunity for you to, to hear a little bit about how we see God has uh, called us and uniquely wired us. There's lots of amazing churches on the Central Coast, and uh, especially in Slow, there's some great churches. In fact, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but over the past three years, there's been almost five, maybe six brand new, either brand new church plants and or new pastors taking over older churches. So that's, that's extraordinary. I've been here over 26 years to just kind of watch, but over the past three to five years, the amount of new churches and church growth and church plants that are happening across the Central Coast, particularly at Slow, is kind of amazing, which means I think God's doing something pretty awesome. There's a lot of great churches. And so we see ourselves as a church amidst a lot of other great churches. And so I think the question is, is how has God called us to be a unique presence that bears forth the testimony, the life of Jesus here on the Central Coast amidst a lot of other great churches. Not that we're in competition with that, we we're, in, we're in partnership with, we love. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not as well, but we meet monthly and we pray with all of the pastors and many of the ministry leaders in St. Louis. Uh, there's about 35 or so of them all together, which we don't always make it at the same week, but we are oftentimes coming together. We just did this this past week and it was awesome just to be able to pray together. Guys from Agape Church and people from um, a brand new church plant called Slow City Church in uh, Mountain Brook and uh, other great churches on the Central Coast. We just come together, we pray for each other, pray for God to do a fresh work in our churches, in our community, in the lives of the people that are part of the churches. So um, yes, a lot of good stuff happening. So um, once we're done with that vision series, we're going to start a brand new series right after that, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you've ever read that book, my encouragement to you might maybe be to begin to read that, if you've never read it, to familiarize yourself with that great book as well. So right now, I'm going to jump right into the book of Daniel. So hopefully you guys are open there, Daniel chapter 9, or Daniel chapter 10, which is what we're going to be looking at, 10 through 12, so three chapters, kind of a lengthy section that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we will not read every little bit and piece of it. One of the things that we said from the very beginning of the book of Daniel is that there's going to be moments we're going to fly low, we're going to look at detail of certain elements, and then there's going to be occasions we're going to fly really high. This is one of the other occasions where we'll fly really high and look at a bigger scope of what's happening here in the book. So what I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then I'll give you guys a little bit of a backstory as to what the book of Daniel is about, if you're unfamiliar with it, and then we'll begin to look at the passages that we'll try to understand today, and hopefully God will speak to us. So let's pray. God, we uh, commit this time in your hands right now. We pray that you just take our hearts and God, speak to us, and no matter where we're at, no matter what types of circumstances we may be going through, God, I pray that you would speak to us uh, the subject of hope. We need hope in our world. We need hope in our lives. And we pray, God, that the words that you have uh, for us would just speak to those deep parts of our lives that are in need of it. Uh, help me, God, now to be faithful, to communicate the things that are on your heart rightly, and help us to respond accordingly, God, in ways that are just consistent 
with your nature and how you've called us and how you've wired us to be here on the Central Coast. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Daniel, um, we've been saying kind of big, big scope, is, can be broken down into two main sections, chapters 1 through 6, is a series of um, images or visions that others receive from Daniel, or from others, and then Daniel gives these uh, responses to these dreams and visions. Uh, the story of storyline of that is a little bit bigger than that, are the children of Israel, the people of Israel, were taken off into exile by this world militaristic superpower called Babylon. Uh, the people of Israel had been drifting away from God. Rather than being in right relationship with God, they veered from God. And rather than worshiping God, they kind of delved off into idolatry. Rather than treating people with dignity, value, and respect, what we would call justice, they tr started treating each other with injustices. And all sorts of brokenness and evil began to ravage their land. God allowed their defenses to be removed. And this big, bad, super bully called Babylon comes in and takes them off into exile. Within that exile, you have a handful of people. Daniel is one of them. He's the main character in the story here, as well as his three friends. Some of you are probably familiar with the VeggieTales videos, which is highly inaccurate in terms of the storyline. But the point of the matter is, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some of these other people that play into the storyline of the book of Daniel. And the bigger question that was basically being raised or trying to be understood is how does one remain a faithful Jew in the midst of a big, bad, militaristic world superpower that is attempting, with all of its efforts and power, to erase Jewish identity and replace it with Babylonian identity? And what we've been watching along throughout the storyline of the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his three buddies uh, were able to maintain uh, faithfulness to God and to the ways of God in spite of this massively powerful current called Babylon trying to erase and remove. Now, there are occasions where as they were standing faithful to God, that it was a life or death challenge for them, and they chose death. This is why they were thrown to the lions, or like in Daniel's case, or thrown to the fire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what you see throughout each of those occasions, God actually spared them. But aside from that, they were willing to suffer death rather than uh, be unfaithful to God, which there's a, a powerful message in that for us. Because, again, we've been saying this all along. We live in a culture today that is not uh, benign when it comes to its influence. It does not, it, even though it's very polytheistic in the sense where it just says, hey, worship whatever God you want, whatever God you choose. At the end of the day, when it comes to, like, hey, we follow Jesus. There's oftentimes this subtle, like, really, Jesus? That's the God? There's a, there can be a tendency to come against or a hostility to some degree. Or even in some cases, we've been saying from the very beginning of this series that at one point, Christianity was uh, accepted, widely accepted. But in a lot of ways, in cases now, it's the question is now, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, oftentimes you could be met with looks of skepticism or like, really, that's who you are? You're a bigot? You follow Jesus? But the point of the matter is this, is that at the end of the day, we live in a culture today that is not just uh, benign when it comes to our understanding of following Jesus. The point that I'd make is that we live in a culture that is attempting to uh, remove uh, the uh, our identity as followers of Jesus or at least make you feel lame for being a follower of Jesus. The point that I'd make is that uh, the book of Daniel is very poignant for us today because it raises those questions. How do we live faithfully to God even in the midst of a culture that is trying to uh, remove one's identity of being faithful to Jesus? The point is, is that 
that's kind of the first several chapters of the book of Daniel. Now it comes to the latter portion, which is where we're at right now, of Daniel chapter 7 on to the end of the, chapter, uh, end of the book, where he receives a series of visions and images, and he gets interpretations of what those are all about. This is where the chapter or the chapters in the book begin to pivot now away from more of the images for these other powerful kings now to where Daniel begins to focus upon uh, the images of what's happening in a bigger, broader scope of the world. So I want to basically just uh, put it in the context of a statement that I have up here, which we'll come to. The question that I think that's on Daniel's mind is how long... Um, until the downfall of these empires, or beastly empires. We get this word beastly from uh, the other images that Daniel has because he has these images of these beasts. And what we've been saying along is that these beasts actually represent empires. Um, um, the Greco-Roman Empire or the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire were oftentimes depicted as these beasts, which I think is, is, is appropriate because um, rather than being human beings, that represent the image of God, that treat others with dignity, value, and respect, what happens when human beings um, begin to emancipate themselves from the ways of God or try to claim independence from God, we don't become more human, we become less human and more beast-like. And we see that even in our own actions, right? If I were to kind of peel back the layers or begin to probe or if someone were to probe your life and begin to look at your worst-case scenario you, um, right, we oftentimes can become beastly. Now, if you were to take a large a proportion of human beings, put them together in a concentrated form, and then put a human being over them, what you would have is an empire. You would have an empire that then seeks to oppress others that don't fit the parameters of that particular people group. That's what an empire is. It's a concentration of human beasts that rule and claim victory and power and ownership other, over others. And that's what Daniel is having these images of, are these beasts are destructive to other human beings. So what Daniel is now identifying, I think the question becomes point for us now at the latter portion of the book of Daniel, is how long until the downfall of these beastly empires and ultimately until the deliverance of God's people. So it's kind of a twofold question. When will this world and all of its brokenness that's ruled by beastly empires, when will that end? And when will God, you, then deliver those that are affected by beastly empires? So it's not enough to just simply figure out when will this whole nightmare we call humanity be over. Uh, the bigger question is, in scope of the religious writers or the biblical writers of the ancient world, uh, it's not just that God's going to rid the world of evil. This is really important for you to know. It's also that God will replace and renew the world to its goodness. This is really important to know. God's aim is not to just rid the world of evil. It's to renew the world to its original goodness. This is, this is such good news. And God has an aim from this or for this from the very beginning. And this is what I want for us to really think about and consider as we begin to take a look at the final three chapters of the book of Daniel. So with that being said, I want to start by reading Daniel chapter uh, 10 verses uh, 1 through 12. Let's just kind of read through this. I'll make some comments and statements as we go. And then what we'll look at is just really two main things, and then we'll be done. So after I read this initial intro, I'm going to really take a look at two main things. The first of which we'll take a look at is the downfall of these beast-like empires. Like when will that happen or what will happen with 
regard to that. And then secondly, we'll take a look at the deliverance of God's people, the basic ideas which we already had outlined. So number one, let's take a look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. I'll read. You can follow along. I'll make some comments. It says this. In the third year of the king Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord was revealed to Daniel, uh, whose name was Belteshazzar. This is the name that was originally given to Daniel at the very beginning of the book. He says, and the word was true, and it was great conflict. And he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. Verse 2, it says, in those days, I, Daniel, I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, or wine entered my mouth, and I did not anoint myself at all for three full weeks. And then on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the river, uh, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt, a fine belt of Uphaz, uh, made from gold from Uphaz. You, you're familiar with those belts, I'm sure. Around his waist, um, his body, they're very nice. His body was barrel, like that of appearance of lightning, and his eyes were flaming torches. His arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of the words that came out of his mouth, mouth was like a mouth of uh, sound of multitudes of people. In verse 7, I, Daniel, alone uh, saw this vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was alone left, and I saw the great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So this is one of those images where a lot of uh, people have wondered, like, what, what is this image that Daniel is actually seeing? Uh, some have wondered, is this like an angel or Gabriel or Michael, one of these other uh, uh, celestial images? Um, a lot of scholars, some would even think maybe it's a, what's known as a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. We don't really know. The statement is not made clear to us. There is some very great similarity between this image that Daniel sees in the book of Revelation around chapter 1, which is a description of Jesus. But the point of the matter is, is that what Daniel saw, whatever it was, it, it radically shook him to the core, that Daniel falls on his face, he has these uh, physical reactions to this, and he has no strength. Verse 10, it goes on to say, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, greatly loved, and understanding the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have seen, I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, uh, and I have come because of your words. So the point that is going to basically set into motion the final like sequence of events in the book of Daniel is he has this image, and this image uh, rocks him, so much so to the point where it says that he begins to put upon himself a fast. He doesn't eat anything, he doesn't drink anything, he dresses himself in what's called sackcloth and ashes, and the idea behind this is his soul is in turmoil and in grief, and it was sort of an outward expression of the inner, inner experience of his heart. He was going through great turmoil inside, and this is a part of his way of uh, dealing with that. And so as he's fasting, as he's praying, as he's seeking God, as he's trying to take his grief and sense of uh, sorrow to God, um, he begins to pray. And uh, again, like I said, we're not exactly certain what the deal is that Daniel is uh, dealing with. But the way I would think about this, I think Daniel's no doubt questioning, wondering, uh, again, when will all of this happen? 
Um, but even more importantly, God, when will you overcome these beastly empires? Because I think Daniel, as he's identifying this, he's realizing with beastly empires also comes the oppression of human beings. And in this case, it's not just random human beings. These are his, his people, the Jewish people. They're being oppressed. They're being thrown under the boot of these oppressors, and there's suffering, there's pain, there's loss, there's death. And Daniel is grieving the fact that there is some form of deep sorrow going on in the lives of his countrymen. And so what's happening is Daniel also at the same time is no doubt asking the bigger question, God, when will you deliver? Which that's basically the question that many of us deal with. Because on the one hand, we could be asking the bigger question, how do we remain faithful in this country in which we live in? And that's an important question because as followers of Jesus, living in the country in which we do, recognizing that the current that is in opposition to Jesus is growing more, more hostile and stronger by the day, um, we can be asking the question, how do we live faithfully before God in this context? But at some point, that question begins to morph into, Lord, when? When will you step in? When will you help us? When will you overcome these beastly forces? When will you deliver us from this evil? And that's an important question that no doubt Daniel is beginning to ponder and question. So with that, I want to really kind of focus on the last two little sections here, the first of which is the downfall of these beast-like empires. And like I said from the very beginning, Daniel has these images of these empires. Um, for example, when King Nebuchadnezzar, at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, has this image of the statue, and the statue is made out of different types of um, um, metals, and then we're told, I think, Dan, uh, Daniel chapter uh, 3, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive statue, right? And, uh, and is, is a way of kind of depicting his greatness. Um, and then later on, Daniel has another, uh, he interprets a dream of the king, of these beasts that come out of the water. And all of these are basically telescoping ways of viewing earthly empire all throughout history. Um, literal human empire, and many scholars believe at some point even future empires that have not even yet come. Uh, if you want to think of it this way, many believe that um, Babylon is sort of like this template or prototype of all sorts of other beastly types of empires. So, for example, um, even in the New Testament, um, during the Roman occupation, uh, Jews, for example, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter describes, you know, you're living in the Babylon and that's not true. They weren't living in Babylon. So what was actually going on? Well, he's basically likening Rome to Babylon. He's just using uh, language uh, that is sort of idiom to kind of identify the fact that we're actually in Babylon. Like Babylon is sort of like a prototype of all of these earthly slash beastly empires that just oppress and cause pain and ruin upon other people's lives. But this question of when will this earthly empire at some point come to a final end. And maybe you've had that question yourself. Maybe you've looked around the world at some point and you're just like, What's, when will all of this come to an end? When will a new administration enter in? When will an old administration go out? When will somehow things get better? And this seems to have been, I mean, the longer I live, the older I get, the more I realize this just is a cycle that anytime we ever get to a place of like we finally hit the sweet spot, like don't hold on to that for very long because at some point that will become sour again, right? So the point of the matter is, is that we live in a world that no matter how good you think it's gotten, it at some point will come to an end because at some point there is rottenness to the very core of it all because it's all part of this earthly slash beastly empire that will one day come to an end. It has an expiration date on upon it. 
So Daniel chapter 11, and this is a very lengthy chapter. I just kind of want to give you a little bit of a sequence of events that we see by way of an outline up here. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter. You can read through it on your own time. It's, it's long. It's lengthy. There's a lot of detail here uh, that I just want to quickly outline. So we see most scholars believe it's a reference to two major empires, the first of which was the time frame in which Daniel lived. It was the Persian Empire. And this was then overtaken by the, uh, the Grecian Empire, which is um, Alexander the Great, and then Alexander, his empire basically, I mean, he conquers the world, and yet at some point he doesn't actually get to live. I mean, how old was Alexander the Great when he dies? Anybody know? I think it was like 33, yeah. Imagine that. Imagine conquering the world. You're 33 years old. You have everything underneath your power, your scope of power. It's all yours. And then he dies. You have nothing. You no longer, and not only that, this, his empire actually gets divided into four, and each of these four that are, are basically under him, they're not as great as Alexander, and so you have nothing but contention and strife and division. So literally the empire fragments, and so the very thing that Alexander like fought for and ultimately dies and never actually fully enjoys, he loses it. This shows you how uh, like... Um, vapor-like, the reality of all of this earthly empire really is all about anyhow. But what we see is that then the Greeks come on, and then there's these battles between the south and the north, the north and the south, and then we have this final guy that's basically described as this contemptible person. Most scholars believe that this is a guy or a reference to a guy by the name of Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, which was around 130 years before Jesus actually came on the map. Um, and so what we see with regard to this guy that's kind of fascinating, in fact, this actually plays into, to some degree, even modern history. So if, you're, uh, if you have uh, friends or if you're Jewish and you know people that have actually celebrated, like Hanukkah, Hanukkah actually dates back to this various time frame. So there's this guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one of the, uh, the, the part of the lineage or the legacy of the, the Greco or the, uh, the Roman, sorry, the Greek Empire, um, and he's ruling in this particular region of Jerusalem. Um, the problem is he hates the Jewish people. So he's straight up anti-Semitic, and he hates the Jewish people so much, he actually wants to bring disruption to their very um, sacrifices, and he knows Jews have a kosher diet. So what does he do? He brings a pig, and he sacrifices a pig in the midst of their temple, which is a straight up abomination, and it causes destruction and chaos. But what it does is it incites this uh, riot. So you have this uh, group of mob. Uh, like uh, people on the side in the margins, they were called the Maccabean Revolt is what ended up happening. So you have this group of brothers that come together that basically formed this uh, militia and they became murderers. And what they did is they basically took back the temple by way of the sword and they killed people, they slaughtered people. And this, they became basically heroes throughout the Jewish uh, folklore. And so by the time of Jesus, what you have in the collective memory of Jews up until that point Here's the Jewish people living under Roman rule, and in their mind, they're waiting for the day for someone to rise up to take back Israel for themselves, which means to strip it away from the Roman people, which they all hate. They don't like being taxed. They don't living, like living under Roman occupation, living under Roman militaristic you know, power. And so they're all desperate, waiting for someone to arise to take back uh, Jerusalem for themselves. And then on comes the scene is a guy named Jesus. He says, hey, I'm the, I'm the Messiah, right? So he gives this indication that he is the rightful heir of the throne. And so a lot of the followers of Jesus assume that Jesus is going to take back 
the throne in the same way that the Maccabees took back the throne, with the sword, with violence, with hostile takeover. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus completely appends and throws into chaos their expectations. Because rather than destroying and violently overtaking other people, Jesus does something totally unexpected. He goes to the prostitutes and the whores and the people that are outcasts and the people that should never be given place at a table, and he gives them dignity and value and honor. It's absolutely, utterly shocking, so much so to the point that people begin to even question, is he really even the Messiah? Because the Messiah is going to come and kill people. They never expected a Messiah to come to actually be killed. And that's exactly what Jesus does. But this is Jesus coming on the throne in light of this history of the Maccabean Revolt, which all took place as a result of this, quote-unquote, contemptible person. Um, but the point of the matter is, coming back into the storyline, is we see beastly empire at some point coming to an end. What we see in the storyline of the chapter 11 is this continual like cul-de-sac. Kingdom rises, kingdom falls, empire rises, empire falls. It's this ongoing, repetitious history over and over and over again. I mean, even going past the time frame of Jesus into, you know, all of these other great, massively strong empires that have risen, that have fallen, have risen, that have fallen. It's the same story over and over again. Every human beastly empire, as violent, as destructive as it is, will one day come to an end. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but that should cause us hope. It should cause us to, number one, have great hope that God actually outlasts and outlives every form of evil empire. But it should also cause us to step back a little bit with a sense of question, how are we relating right now to the empire and the world in which we live in? It should cause us to realize that even though we live in this incredible country called America, this is not our ultimate place of allegiance. We don't swear ultimate allegiance to the eagle, right? It's, it's, this, is not, this nation, as great as it is, as much as we love it, as much as we want to be uh, good citizens in this country and serve it as best as we can, it is not our ultimate and final home. And people that swear their ultimate allegiance to this country over even Jesus have lost the plot line. This is what Daniel wants to remind us, to bring us back into sync and into harmony with who God is and what God is doing in this world. That every earthly, beastly empire will one day come to an end. So, we will see their rise and ultimately their fall. Next slide is we will come ultimately to the deliverance of God's people. That we see these, again, what is a beastly empire? Is it probably good to just consider and think about it? A beastly empire ultimately is one that exalts themselves as God, and then ultimately exercises oppressive authority over others. And this is, it always goes this way, because what is an empire? I mean, let's, let's first of all start with what is an individual that turns away from God? An individual that turns away from God is somebody that stands up and says, I'll decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, right? I mean, that's, that's page one of the Bible, right? Actually, technically, page three of the Bible. But you get Adam and Eve coming on the scene. God says, hey, listen, I will be the one that will show you good from evil. Adam and Eve basically, for all intents and purposes, say, we'll decide right from wrong, good from evil ourselves. And that's what ends up happening. They choose. And as a result of their choosing and deciding good from evil, they made the wrong choice. And 
consistently, humanity over and over and over again has shown and proven that we make not wise choices all the time. Now, when again, you get a high concentration of human beings who make unwise choices all the time together in the context of what we would call an empire, what you have is a, is a collective of people saying, we'll decide based upon our own collective consciousness and awareness and individual understanding or, and or democrat, democratic understanding, we will decide right and wrong. But at some point, what will end up happening is whoever decides right or wrong then will have to find other collective of people that don't fit within that right or wrong, meaning they're the bad guys. They're the scapegoats. That's exactly what happened during the Third Reich. Hitler rises up, he has this collective group of people side with him, right? Jewish people, um, gypsies, other people that are not ethnically part of us. They are a problem to our country. They cause issues for our people, for our advancement as a culture. They must somehow be removed or rid from our collective ability. And so at some point, they become the bad ones. They become the oppressed people group. And it all began, it all begins by a collective group of people basically saying, we will decide for ourselves what's right or wrong. That is, in other words, a way of basically saying, exalting oneself as God. That's what we mean. So, beastly empires, they exalt themselves as God, and then they ultimately exercise oppressive authority over others. Now, with that being said, I want to finish up with this final thought in terms of the deliverance of God's people, because this is where the book of Daniel ends and concludes, and there's a lot of great things to consider here. So... In conclusion, what I want to think about is Daniel chapter 12 then begins to describe really the fall and rise of these people that are loyal to God. Their fall and yet ultimately their rise because that's where the story ends. Daniel chapter 12, I'm going to read some final closing passages and then I'll make some final comments. Daniel 12 verses 1 through 4 says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust shall, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words of the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then the book continues to just kind of cycle off and basically say at some point, this will be revealed at another later point. But the point that I want to finish up with this is the most important element, that the deliverance of God's people, which kind of raises the question for me in terms of twofold. Number one, go to the next slide. Um, who are God's people? And then secondly is, what are God's people promised? So let's first of all take a look at what and who are God's people. Well, he identifies this in a handful of passages. At the end of Daniel chapter 11, I'll just kind of go ahead and point out some of these, these things. He says, number one, these are people who know their God. So very clearly he identifies God's people. In other words, if you want to put it in this way, who are those that are loyal to God versus those who are disloyal to God? So disloyalty to God would mean loyalty to something else. This is a really important thing to note, that the subject of faith, there's a lot of people that might say, I don't have faith in God, I don't just have faith at all, I, don't, I, don't, I believe in humanity. Uh, all of us as human beings, we have faith in something. It's really important to note. All of us have faith in something. So if you choose to not have faith or confidence in God, 
we will have faith and confidence in something else. Uh, that faith and confidence may be in humanity. It may be in science, right? I think in Napoleon Dynamite. Um, not Napoleon Dynamite. Sorry. I just completely, sorry, Nacho Libre. Sorry. That was like a total faux pas of sin. Lord Jesus, help me. Anyways, the point that I would make is this, is that uh, we have faith in something, confidence in something. Uh, none of us are neutral when it comes to faith and confidence. We will all place it in something or somewhere. And so the point that I would make is that those who have loyalty in God will also simultaneously be disloyal to the empire. And that's what we see with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, is that while they were loyal to God, they were also, to some degree, in certain areas, disloyal to the empire. Uh, if we're loyal to the empire, first and foremost, as our ultimate means of pledging of ourselves, our allegiance to, then at some point we will find ourselves in disloyalty to God. And so what we see with regard to this, number one, these are people that know their God. They know God. Uh, this is very similar to what Jesus would say. He says, eternal life is this. He says, that they might know you. So I don't know what you think about what eternal life is or what types of conceptions you've had about eternal life. For some, it's like eternal life is what you get when you die. Um, that is completely not correct. <laughs> um, it, eternal life, first and foremost, is about a relationship with the living God. First and foremost. And it's a relationship that begins now that will carry on post-mortem. So when you die, it will just, whatever you have now in terms of that relationship will just continue on throughout that eternal state, that whatever that looks like. But the point of the matter is, number one, we see that these are people that know their God. Secondly, we were told that they're ones that stand firm. So we see that with Daniel and his friends, that they stand firm. They have this firm resolution in their heart that we will not defy our God. We will not be disloyal to Yahweh God. We will stand firm. And those areas where we can harmonize our lives with Babylon will harmonize our lives with Babylon, right? If they want us to bear their name, we'll bear their names that they give us, right? That's why Daniel and his three buddies end up changing their names. Uh, there seems to be no straight-up uh, pushback on that. They just accept that. There's other areas where they're able to serve and work within the nation, capital, and so on. But the point of the matter is there's other occasions where Daniel and his three buddies are basically like, we cannot violate our conscience. We cannot turn our back upon Yahweh. So we will be disloyal to Babylon where we need to be disloyal to Babylon. But that is their way of basically standing firm. Uh, thirdly, we see that they take action. So in other words, you cannot just simply remain neutral when it comes to many of these elements. Uh, again, there are moments where God's kingdom and God's values may be okay and they harmonize with, with America, right? And then there's other occasions where they may not harmonize with America or with values of the culture at large, whatever house culture that we are living in. But the point of the matter is that there may be occasions where they kind of overlap and it's okay. But then there's other occasions where they don't overlap, and at some point it requires some degree of taking action. But again, the action that we see that Daniel and his three buddies take is not when they find themselves in contradiction to the culture. They're not taking out swords and going out and causing hostile, bloody takeover. They're basically saying, look, if we're violating, then I guess we'll pay the price. Throw us to the lions. Cast us to the fire. They're willing to take whatever types of uh, violence will be brought upon them, and yet we see that there are occasions where God is basically set them free. But they were even willing to say, look, even if God doesn't deliver us, even if we end up being burnt alive in your fires, we're still not going to violate our God. Um, and then finally, we see that the, they're wise. 
They're wise, meaning they imbibe wisdom, which comes from this ancient long theme of the Bible, which is directly linked to following the ways of God. So Genesis chapter 1 begins to describe that uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, goodness, comes from God. We see throughout the book of the Proverbs uh, that wisdom is actually depicted as a, as a lady wisdom, this woman that comes along, and when you're in a right relationship with her, you're feasting off of what she offers to you, this, this, this wisdom, this life-giving agency that allows you to thrive and flourish and become a source of life. So we see that these people are wise. But again, what true wisdom is, is not just simply being a garden in of yourselves where you like, enjoy your own fruit and fruitfulness, is that a, the whole point of a garden is it gives life to others. Um, God makes us and blesses us not so that we as an end can be an end of ourselves, but that we through our lives can then be a blessing to other people. So if God ever blesses you, be aware of that, that it's not to just somehow be a source for you, but that through you, then you can be a source of blessing to other people. So they're wise, they turn others to righteousness as well as these other three elements. So those are who God's people are. Secondly, we see what are God's people promise. And this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 2, he says, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the point that Daniel is basically being communicated here with regard to this is that there's this hope that's basically offered to them. Now, again, this is imagery that's basically described that has, uh, again, we've used the analogy before. It's like hyperlinks, that this phrase, the dust of the earth, this is a big, blue, glowing hyperlink that takes you right straight back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, where God created humanity from what? The dust. Right? And then ultimately what ends up happening is humanity, rather than uh, trusting God and walking in the ways of God, they trust in them themselves, and we're told that they're, they were aided along in that process by the way of a snake, right? A talking serpent, and that talking serpent then receives judgment from God, and God tells the serpent, you're going to go where? To the dust of the earth. And then God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, somewhere around verse 17, I think it is, somewhere around like that, I think it says this, he describes that you will go, verse 19, he says, from the dust you came, and to the dust you shall return. So this is the image that God says that humanity, uh, originally when God created human beings, he created them so that they would basically thrive and rule this planet. And God's idea of ruling the planet, of ruling the dirt, is to create gardens. That might sound shocking to you, but think of a garden. That's what the Garden of Eden was. It was this place that when you walk into it, it literally is teeming with fruit. You don't even have to work for it. You just walk up to a tree and you grab it. When my kids were young, we used to go to uh, Avila Valley Barn. You guys ever been out there? You know, when you pick, like, nectarines and peaches and all this amazing stuff. We would go there. We would eat so much. It was ridiculous. And we would just walk up the trees and grab it and we'd eat it. And, oh, my gosh, it was amazing. Like, and I had these images in my mind of, like, this imagine entire world filled row after row after row of fresh new trees that you could, you've never even had before. You just walk up to it, and it just gives you the fruit. You don't have to do anything for it. It's just there for the taking. I think this was God's original imagination for what life would be like. But somewhere along the line, rather than humanity 
trusting, walking in relationship with God. They turned away from God, decided to follow their own path, create their own reality, follow their own instincts of their own heart, and it led to earthly ways. And God says, rather than you ruling the earth, you will be ruled by the earth. And we have a phrase today. We say, you will be buried six feet under. Which, at the end of the day, it's part of poetic justice. The earth ends up ruling us, rather than us ruling the earth. But in Daniel chapter 12, we're told that there's going to be a cosmic reversal of all of this. Because out of the dust will arise, God says, my people. They will arise out of the dust. This is the hope. This is language which would come to be identified in the New Testament as resurrection. In other words, something that was dead coming back to life, not just the resuscitation, but a resurrection, something that was once gone and buried now comes back to life and is alive, never to die again. This is the image that Daniel tells us. Now, what I want to finish with is this picture. I want for you to just think about this, because last little slide I want you to think about is that what God is ultimately declaring is this massive assault upon death itself, that God is basically declaring the death of death itself. So I want you to imagine a world that's ultimately completely free from sin, because sin is tied to death. Sin is basically the attempt to emancipate ourselves from God, or the declaration of independence from God. That's what sin ultimately is. It's ultimately saying, I don't need God to decide right or wrong, good from evil. I can do that myself. That's an act of independence, declaring independence from God. But here's, here's, here's the rub. If God, the way the Bible describes, if God is the cosmic source of all life and all love, then to declare one's independence from this God is to not move towards more life and love. It's actually move towards death and greater alienation and cosmic loneliness. It's, that's exactly where our culture is at right now in highly concentrated fashion. I want you to imagine, and this is, this is so challenging for us, because we do not have any reference points for, reference points for this. But what I want to do is I'm going to finish with reading an Old Testament poem of the prophet Isaiah that will give us reference points for this to consider. But I want you to imagine a life, a world, a neighborhood, where you can walk down the street not having to fear for your life, or if you're a woman uh, in the midst of a busy area where you're not having to worry about sexual assault or being attracted or somehow someone doing something or saying something to you that will leave you feeling uh, vulnerable or open, or if you have a house and you're worried about your house being broken into or a car being broken, imagine a world that is completely free from not only sin, but also death. And death is one of those things that whether you are an atheist, an agnostic, or a faithful, straight-up follower of Jesus, we are all affected by death. You cannot outflank the emotions that are tied to death. It's somehow this universal reality that we know instinctively is not okay. Something is not right with death. No matter how much you try to convince yourself, it's just natural. It's just a part. And it is not a part of life. It is not natural. It is a complete uh, destruction of the order that God set in motion from Genesis 1. That God promises to one day undermine death itself. And that's exactly what Daniel is being told here. One day, those in the dust will rise from the dust 
ever to live. So I want you to listen to the poem of Isaiah, chapter 65. It's an amazing poem. Just listen to these words. I'll make a few statements, and I'll wrap it up with these thoughts. Isaiah, chapter 65, says this. For behold, in verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Uh, if you're familiar with these words, maybe you read the book of Revelation. You know that the book of Revelation actually ends with these words. Um, John did not create these. He literally is, it's a hyperlink straight into this poem right here from Isaiah. What Isaiah is attempting to do, he's attempting to use language that's uh, set on fire by the Holy Spirit to awaken the imagination of our minds and our thoughts and our understanding to imagine a world where Yahweh God rules and reigns, where death doesn't. Because that's our world in which we live in right now, by the way, if you're wondering. We live in a world right now that's ruled and reigned by death and all of its friends. And God promises a world where that reign, that beastly empire, will com be completely unplugged and destroyed and removed and replaced with the kingdom that God himself will set up. And he says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 18, but, the glad, uh, be, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. If you're familiar at all with Israel's history with God, is that Israel was called to be this chosen people of God. And yet, oftentimes, over and over again, Israel would actually turn its back upon Yahweh God and turn to all these other pagan entities and deities. And it wasn't, it wasn't just that they turned to these pagan entities and deities. It's just that in turning to these other pagan deities, they would also engage in the practices of these pagan entities and deities. So for example, you would have the worship of Baal, right? It was a pagan deity of the land. But with Baal came also the worship of the body, uh, sexual activity, just gone crazy, gone mad. And what happened is, is when you have a collective culture and society that is constantly consumed with sexual activity, you also have the dehumanization of those people. So in other words, when you have a culture that's constantly thinking sexual ideas about another human being, you cannot look at that person as another human being that bears the image of God. You will look at them as nothing more than a toy or a plaything or an object. We call it objectification. And this is the problem. And it's an undermining of the image of God. And it's an undermining of the very course and the good purposes that God intended for creation. And so what God is promising is I will create a new heavens, a new earth, a new society that loves me and in loves me, loves one another. And Israel and Jerusalem does not need to worry or be afraid anymore because they will be in right relationship with me. And it goes on to say in verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his old days. For a young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred uh, years old shall be uh, accursed. So again, this is poetic language. You shouldn't be necessarily reading this literalistically. But the point of the matter is just is imagine a world where when a mother gives birth to a child doesn't die after a few hours. Imagine a world where death does not have a stronghold. Imagine a world where if you lived until the age of 100, people would be like, oh, man, Bob, he only lived to be 100. That, can you imagine? Again, this is not saying timelines. It's simply imagining a world where death has no grip upon humanity ever again. That's what the poet's saying. 
It goes on to say, verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, nor shall they plant and another eat. Some of you might be like, that's my world today. Like, I, I have a garden, and congratulations, it's wonderful, you are a minority. Because the rest of the world today, there are many, many, many places on planet Earth right now, you plant a garden, and you have no guarantee you're going to get fruit. You build a house, you have no guarantee that another, some mob army might not drive into your village and overtake not only your house, but also steal your wife and your kids and sell them off and sex traffic or take all the food that you've just created and somehow all the stockpiles that you've created and eat it and obtain it for themselves. And that is world history right now in the world in which we live in today. If that is not our current experience, obviously as Westerners, as Americans that live on the central coast of California, then that is the experience, lived experience of many, many on this planet today right now that live daily wondering what will happen tomorrow, what will happen the next day, will I live to marry off my children, will I ever be able to see my grandchildren, will I ever be able to retire and have this good life that I long for, that I desire. The point of the matter is, is the prophet and the poet is basically imagining a world where this will become the norm. And then he goes on to say, for like the days of a tree, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall uh, long enjoy the work of their hands. And I love this image because it says, uh, their days will be like the trees. So this is kind of an amazing thing if you think about it this way. There's trees upon planet Earth right now that have lived thousands of years right? Uh, redwoods. Um, or in the new year, we're going to have an opportunity as a church. Many of us are going to go to Israel. We're going to go to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's actually these olive trees that are 500, 600, 700 years old. We're going to be sitting on stumps of trees that are so, so old. And what he, the prophet, poet is imagining, imagine a day where those that are loyal to God will just, the death will not be a part of of their constant thinking. Imagine that. This is amazing. Then he goes on to say, verse 23, and they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Next slide as he finishes up. He says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. And what the prophet's imagining is a day in which the whole earth is like Jerusalem, the sacred space where Yahweh occupies. Can you imagine that? That's the future. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is our hope. This is what we have a hope to look forward to, that God will one day, as strong, as dominant, as powerful as evil empires are today, they will not have the last word. God will. And God's declaration is that those that are loyal and faithful to me in Christ, because of what I've done, I will give them this future and this hope. But the flip side, he goes on to say, there's a, there's a negative side to this whole promise because he says there will be those that will also rise and go forth to everlasting contempt. And the image is this. And I've been saying this all along. The God of the Bible is a God of new life. And like I said earlier, to declare independence from God is to actually declare independence from life and love and light 
And to not move into the relationship with God is to move into the relationship of death, of darkness, of alienation. The most tragic thing of the entire universe is that God seems to, at some point, say, if death is the aim of your heart, then I'll give you that. If that is the construct, if that is the deepest desire, if that's the instinct that your heart is longing after, then you'll be given to you. And this seems to be what the promise is declaring. But the flip side of it is, those that hold to this God of life will be given all that the God of life gives, which is life, as one scholar describes it, life after life after death. The hope that we will live again on a planet that's renewed, that's unscathed, unmarked, unstained by death and all of its friends. The book of Daniel closes with this incredible image that we get to hold on to. So I don't know where you're at. And I don't know how this resonates with you. But my hope would be that as you hear the image, the vision that were cast for you and even articulated through the prophet Isaiah, that you would see this God as a God that deeply cares for us. Because all of these promises ultimately pointed forth to Jesus, who when he was standing before his accusers, he basically makes this statement. He says, one of these days you will see the Son of Man ascended to the right hand of God. And in that declaration, I think what Jesus was identifying was that not only was he the son of man figure that rightly represents Yahweh God in all of his ways, but he was also simultaneously saying, you are the beastly figures that will bite and devour, but you will not have the last word. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And what the New Testament story is, is this invitation to give your life, give your loyalty to Jesus. And in giving our loyalty to King Jesus, everything that Jesus experienced will be our experience, which means life after death. That's our great hope. So we're going to respond. I'm going to pray. I'll have the worship team come on up, and we will have a moment to just reflect and turn our hearts to this God as we partake of the bread and the cup. As we respond, if you're here and there are any areas in your life that you need prayer, we want to give some space to be able to pray for you. So no matter what's happening in your life, how about we all stand and let's respond and turn our hearts to this God. Let me pray. God, thank you for your love. And in this place right now, God, we turn ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God that takes our sin and our rebellion and our brokenness the lies that we believe, the lies that we believed about you. And God, you give us new hearts and new minds. So we invite you, God, now to wash away our sin, our brokenness, uh, the narratives that we believed about you that are just rubbish. And God, replace them with truth, that you're a God that actually cares deeply about humanity and restoring and renewing our hearts and our lives. So God, in this place, in this time right now, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we're reminded of the table to which we're all invited to, God, that we would find and discover the hope that you're offering to each one of us right now. So let's respond. And again, as I mentioned, if you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, just brokenness, sinfulness, you just need healing, whatever it is, whatever it is that's going on, you just need a touch from Jesus, we want to pray for you. 
I'll be off to the side. We'll have some other leaders available to pray for you as well. Make your way up to the front. I'd love to spend some time and minister with you.